For whitetail hunters like us, the mid to late season, or the rut, can be miserable if you don't have the right clothing. You're sitting out there all day long, cold, you're not moving a whole lot. But new in 2019, First Light Solitude System is the perfect insulated soft shell clothing system for tree stand and tree saddle hunters. Whether worn on its own or combined with some other pieces from First Light, this kit offers versatility for the whitetail hunter. One of the things we like best about this system is the kit link pass-through pocket. Basically, you put the jacket on, you can zip these pockets down, and you can actually reach into the bibs fleece line chest muff pocket to warm your hands up and access all the items you've got stored in there. To learn more about First Light's new solitude system, head over to their website, firstlight.com. So we've been partnering with Steerka Optics for a while now. We can't say enough good things. The glass is awesome. The warranty is the best in the industry. Check these guys out, steerkastrong.com. Mark Kenyon, thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Excited to chat. Yeah, we've been messaging for a little bit, following you for for years. And actually, I have to say, I've talked about this in the podcast in the past, but I, so I grew up in Grand Rapids. I moved to New Jersey for law school, wasn't able to do much hunting out there, but that was right when you started Wired to Hunt-ish. And so your podcast really got me through some some dark times, you know, in the big city. (laughs) That's awesome. I, I'm glad I could help. I, I had some dark times like that in my own day, and I wish I had a podcast to listen to. I guess I kind of <laughs> did. I listened way back in the day when I first started Wired to Hunt the website. Yep. I was living outside of San Francisco, working mm-hmm. in a tech company back then. I was dying, wishing I could be out in the woods yeah. doing all that kind of stuff. So I, I was starting Wired to Hunt. So every night I just went to my apartment and worked on Wired to Hunt. And then I would go and run on the treadmill. And while running on the treadmill, I would listen to, I think it was called Bowcast Radio. Bowcast I don't even think Radio. it's around anymore. But way back in the day, it was one of the first hunting podcasts out there. And then Peterson's Bow Hunting had a podcast uh, yep. going a little bit back then. This was back in 2008 or nine, Eight, I think. Yep. Yep. So way back in the day, those those are the ones that helped me. So I'm, I'm glad I could pass it on to <laughs> no, somebody else. <laughs> it was good. It was funny because I'm, I'm listening to all this advice. And it was like, those were the years where I would maybe hunt twice a year for, you know, for a couple of years when I would be home. So I, you know, when I get home, I'd be like, all right, I got some, you know, Mark Kenyon advice to, mm-hmm. to put into practice <laughs> here, some public land up in, in Big Rapids, Michigan. But yeah, like I said, I, I was kind of like, it was funny because when I was away, I had like this pent up demand. You know what I mean? So when I like finally moved back to Grand Rapids, like I wanted to hunt way more than I did You're ready prior. To go. I was ready to go. So you're from Michigan. Yeah. You're from the central part of the state. You've got a, a pretty extensive hunting background though, right? You grew up hunting and everything else. Yeah, I grew up, uh, actually grew up on the west side, right right there by you guys in Grand Rapids. And so yeah, I grew up in a hunting family of sorts. Uh, it's an interesting thing though, as I get older and I talk to other people who, who grew up hunting, my family was culturally really into hunting like it was the thing like at family get 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 togethers we would talk about hunting and we'd go up and hunt at our deer camp every year but but really my family didn't know what the heck they were doing first off (laughs) yeah it it was a thing like we would go up to deer camp grandpa my dad and uncles would put up blinds kind of ground blinds or you just sit next to a tree yeah and you just kind of walk out there and and hunt and shoot whatever you saw right (laughs) and and we kind of kind of knew about what a rub was and what a scrape was but it was just kind of like, oh, a rub means there's deer here. Great, you should hunt. And that was the extent of our knowledge growing up. So it wasn't really until I got into high school and college and started 
seeking out my own education that I was able to really, really get into it and figure things out. So yeah, since that point, you know, once I went out on my own, then I started really building my own hunting experiences and getting really, really into it where it kind of consumed my life. And yep. that's what I do now. And I've been fortunate to travel all across the country now and, and hunt whitetails as well as other big game like elk and caribou and bears and yeah, we stuff saw like that, that too. Caribou hunt. Yeah, it's it's funny when we when I was growing up, Jared and I have talked about this before, we would literally go to the same stand. I at least I would every mm-hmm. time regardless of wind and just sit there you know right before light to about 9 30 and you know the same time from four or whatever to to night and wonder like half the time like why am i not seeing deer Uh, Uh you know (laughs) or you even put apples out there midday yeah and then go to your stand at night and say oh yeah they've been here so i'm gonna sit here they're gonna come (laughs) i just put apples out they're gonna know yeah happening yeah i think there's a lot of us doing the same thing for a lot of years (laughs) yeah no it's funny because we would we my uncle would do this thing up up in, you know, the Big Rapids area where he would get, it's like $5, you'd pay like $5 to either get a huge thing of these weird looking carrots, they would they'd throw it in the back of your truck, or you'd get sugar beets. Sugar beets. And so he would yep. dump like a whole pickup load of tr- uh, sugar beets. Half ton. Like half ton of those sugar beets. And once it got cold, you know, the deer, they, actually the deer would really flock mm-hmm. to that, but oh, yeah. not so much this year in Michigan, no, uh, no baiting. Although that's coming yeah. back, I think. I think it's gonna get vetoed. Yeah, you is do. What I understand. Yeah, I I understand it's passed the House and the Senate, but the plan is that the governor's gonna. That's veto right. It. You know, Steve Johnson was telling me that our rep from from our area that that the, I think that's gonna be her first veto. He he mentioned too, which is mm. pretty interesting. That is interesting. So, Wired to Hunt, you started it. What what year was it uh, when you when you first started it? Started the website in the summer of 2008, but then didn't get serious about it till the fall of 09. Were you in college when you start? Was that your college days still? Yeah, I was. It was very similar to the situation I described in San Francisco. Yeah. I was on an internship in between my junior and senior year of college okay. and living in Manhattan, working <laughs> for an uh, ad agency out there. Same thing, stuck in the city, miserable. And I had this idea of, I was actually, my job was working with bloggers to promote the products that my company was, you know, okay. the clients <laughs> my company worked with. So I, I, I kind of, had my eyes open to the fact that there's these things out there called blogs and they're mm-hmm. they're huge and a lot of people read them and you could actually you know get some free stuff or right, like make right. a little money so i thought well, maybe i could maybe i could start a website and kind of scratch that hunting itch even though i was living in the middle of new york city right so i started wired to hunt it gave me just something to work on and have fun with so i did that over the course of the summer but fell away from it once i got back to school and got busy with all that stuff that comes with your senior year of college yeah mm-hmm. When I ended up in San Fran, do that whole thing I described to you guys earlier, that's when I realized, okay, I got to get back on Wired to Hunt, and I don't want to work in the business technology world for the rest of my life. I've got to build Wired to Hunt into something that some way I can make a living in relation to my passion and, and share my love and, and dive into that for the rest of my life. And yep. so I decided then, it was October 2009, I said, damn it, I'm going to make this thing work <laughs> So you, you started basically with the goal of swag. And you ended with like, you know, this is, you know, more of a calling. <laughs> yes, that's very true. <laughs> that was very true. It's come a long way. Yeah, no, that, that's amazing. And, and you brought on uh, Dan Johnson. I, I don't know how, how involved he is in uh, is now, but you brought him on fairly early on too. Yeah, well, when I, you know, I, I ran Wired Hunt from 08 until 2013. And then in 2013, I made the jump and quit my day job right and went full-time with wired to hunt and at that point to that point it would just been the website and then 
I would I did some YouTube videos and then I also mm-hmm. wrote for a bunch of hunting magazines freelance on the side. I decided once I quit my day job and can go full time with Wired to Hunt that I would launch the podcast. So when I launched the podcast in the spring of 14, mm-hmm. I knew I wanted to have a second voice in addition to my own to kind of be the yin to my yang. Uh, yeah. And Dan and I had been kind of loose buddies up until that point we'd met through like a hunting film school years before that and stayed in touch he was a guy that just seemed perfectly suited to bring something very different than what i brought to the table yeah and and so yeah one day i I reached out to him said hey man i'm starting a podcast do you want to kind of be a co-host with me on it and and the rest is history interesting so awesome you, you kind of were, were at the forefront of this, you know, like, I mean, and it kind of fits your name, Wired to Hunt, forefront of things like blogs and podcasts and stuff like that. Was it difficult getting buy-in and, and subscribers and stuff early on, or was that, you know, pretty pretty easy to do? It, I mean, it was a long process. Yeah. A lot, a lot of work. I mean, I, I've had so many people reach out over the years, like, how do you do it? How do you build something like this? Mm-hmm. How do you How do you make a living in the outdoor world or yeah. whatever it might be? It's unfortunate there's no silver bullet answer. It right. was simply I worked my butt off every single day for three years till I made any kind of money, and then another two more years till I could actually make a living from it. So five years, every night, every morning, yep. before work, after work. My girlfriend mad at me. My family never sees me, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I loved it. I was so passionate about this about this way of life and of this this thing I was trying to build that it was it was something I w- was willing to devote that kind of time. So yeah, it was a challenge at first, but it just slowly snowballed and built and built over the course of a a million tiny little things yeah. I've done and little decisions here and little things that worked in a small way and this and that and that and just over years and years has built up to the point where you know, in 14, when I launched the podcast, I had a following already for the website. I already had a, an audience of sorts. So when I started the podcast, I had that kind of built in. So it gave me a great start to the podcast. Well, that's not what I wanted to hear. I wanted to hear like the, all you have to do is this mm-hmm. one thing <laughs> and tomorrow you're going to be a, the next Mark Kenyon. Yeah. I wish I could give you that answer. You don't want to be the next Mark Kenyon. <laughs> no. I'm a shit show. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that spot's taken. Yeah, yeah, that's funny. Yeah. You want to be the much more competent, put together version. Ah, uh, yeah, that's that's funny. So along the way, have you you put yourself out there? I mean, you're this public figure. You're on the fronts of magazines, and you're on Meat Eater and and everything else. Have you dealt with any criticism, or have people you know any pushback or anything like that, or has it been pretty pretty inviting community? Definitely, have had some pushback and criticism. Largely, really positive stuff throughout most of my career. Yeah. But when you get put in front of larger and larger audiences, there's just a greater chance of there being someone who doesn't like you or doesn't right. like mm-hmm. something you have to say. So, what, like you said, when you put yourself out there, you're inviting criticism, especially in today's digital world where it's just so easy for anyone to yep. be a troll. Anonymously. So most, yeah, exactly. So for most of my period, it was pretty minimal. I've been I've been largely blessed with a really supportive yeah. following and, and audience members and people that tune into what I've got going on. So I'm really appreciative of that. Yeah. I will say that, you know, since merging what I'm doing with Wired Hunt with Meat Eater, yeah. right? I went from having this audience that had grown up with me who knew right. me from day one to all of a sudden now I'm being put in front of this millions of other new people who don't know me at all. Mm. And so they're just seeing me and they don't have the context or they don't know my background or anything like that. So since then 
now the haters have come out. Uh, People think, okay, I got a shitty goatee, or I'm not interesting. Or <laughs> you got I'm a not shitty goatee. They Steve. they said that to you. That is them fighting words. <laughs> that's fighting words. Yeah. So I mean, there's more critics these days, but but that's okay. I've I've had to learn to just ignore that as best as possible, and you know, just do the best work I can do and share my truth and share my passion. And some people like it, some people won't, and that's okay. Well, you're you're very meticulous. It seem you seem to be a very detail oriented, meticulous person. Which you know, mm-hmm. I would imagine those are the kind of people that that people have a hard time tearing down because it's like, well, you know, he's doing everything right. You're doing everything right. You're you're taking your time. You're you know you're careful um, and and you do it well. So try to be yeah. But before we move on, I wanted to take a minute to thank one of our show sponsors, Pelican Coolers. These coolers are extremely tough and backed by a lifetime warranty. But what I like most about our coolers is that, as tough as they are, they can be opened with the push of a button. So it'll keep the bears out, but you won't have any trouble getting in. And it gets even better. Right now, if you type in pelicancoolers.com slash hotboga, you'll get a free tumbler with the purchase of any cooler. And we all use the uh, 32-ounce tumbler, and it does an amazing job at keeping hot drinks hot for a very long time and cold drinks cold for a very long time. I'm going to do something maybe a bit unusual or something that I haven't done yet. But I'm going to throw out a James D. Guarantee, which is something I don't just toss around willy-nilly. I'm going to James D. Guarantee that if you buy one of these coolers, you'll have the best cooler experience you've ever had. And you'll be changed as a person for the better. Your life will be totally different from here on out. So don't take my word for it. Go check them out for yourself. Pelicancoolers.com slash hotboga. And now, back to our show. Other than you know the the criticism about your facial hair, which I can't even believe, uh, how has the the transition? I was gonna say something while he's on here, but if well, you wanted to bring it up, oh yeah, <laughs> that's uh, funny. So so the transition to meat eater that had to be kind of unique. I mean that's 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 new to you. That's you know they're they're doing something that's pretty unique in the industry. How has that been so far? Yeah, I mean it was a big, scary, exciting, crazy shift because I had my dream job. Right. I, I was able mm-hmm. to run my own company on my own terms, do whatever I wanted, running Wired to Hunt since 2013. So I had no plans of ever changing that. And then in the summer of 2017, I think, yep. uh, Steve Ranella reached out to me and said, hey, man, I really like what you're doing. We chatted in the past, and uh, he kind of helped me actually start some of the conversations that led to me publishing this book that I just recently okay. published. So we'd had, we knew each other. We've been in touch, but he reached out and said, hey, two things. Number one, what are you doing first week of September? Because I want you to go caribou hunting with me. And number two, (laughs) I want you to be a part of the next phase of what Meat Eater is going to be. Long story short, he described this idea of of transitioning Meat Eater from being just a TV show that he hosted to a larger mission-focused company Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. would take the ethics and the, the shared sensibilities that Steve and I have about hunting and fishing and conservation and trying to share that with a larger world and put some put a lot of people behind it put a lot of resources behind it what could you do if you combined all these different people towards a common cause so that was really intriguing to me because around that same time I had started maybe mentally plateauing in my own mind as far as what I wanted wired hunt to do or be sure you know I, I went from Early on, it was like, could I just scratch this itch to think about hunting while I'm stuck in Manhattan? And then it was, could I get some free gear? And then it was, could I make a little money while doing this thing I love? And the next thing was, could I actually make my full-time living right. doing mm-hmm. this? And so I had this slow progression over you know, over seven, eight years. And where I was at in 2017, you know, each January, I would sit down and write 
these goals. What do I, what's this, what are my goals for this year? What are my five-year goals? Where do I want to go? What do I want this thing to be? And that year I had started shifting more and more of my goals from originally they were, you know, make wired hunt the top or launch the wired Hunt podcast. And then it was right. make it the top whitetail hunting podcast. But now it was more focused on how do I make a positive difference? I want the things I'm doing to actually you influence, know, influence and matter a yeah. decade from now. Those are the starts, the things I was starting to think about. So I, I was starting to shift all of my decisions towards how do I do something really positive? How do I make a change? How do I make a difference for the future of hunting and the yeah. future of wild places? When Steve came to me with this opportunity, I saw that very clearly connected into how can I make a bigger positive difference? So after a whole lot of thinking and debating and late nights worrying about it and wondering about <laughs> it, decided to take that leap and kind of join the team and try to be a part of something even bigger. And so that's been like a year and a half, almost two years yeah. now, really, which is kind of crazy. And so it's been it's been great. It's, you know, a whole new adventure, a lot of new things, a lot of new challenges, but a lot of great opportunities coming out of it, too. And, and just tons of learning experiences. I mean, I've been pushed and pulled in new ways and getting to meet with and work with some really interesting, brilliant people. So so it's been a it's been a hell of a journey. Yeah, you're it's very different, you know. Actually Jared and I went and heard you in Kalamazoo, was that yep. last year? We oh, heard yeah. you live. Yep. Nice. So uh you're you're switching. You're not only recording, you're doing these live podcasts, which has to be a little weird. Yeah, live live events and you know, Back hosting 40. a show now and and all sorts of stuff. So there's there's a lot going on. Yeah, I love that that forty acres project. That, that's a yeah, that's pretty cool. 40. Yeah, that's fun to follow. Absolutely, it's very unique. Yeah, it's been a it's been an interesting thing just trying to figure out how to not just you know tell the story of how do you make a great deer hunting property, yeah. which mm-hmm. a lot of people talk about, but how do you try to make a great hunting property, but then also balance all these other things and look at the bigger picture yeah. and better understand private land conservation and biodiversity and then, you know, still have good hunting and right. also still try to share this place with others too. Mm-hmm. That's a whole thing that is a challenge. We're bringing out different people, different experts, also new hunters, also, you know, just can you take a little piece of property and do all sort? can it be... I don't even know how to describe it. A lot of different things yeah. is basically what we're trying to do, and that's been a learning experience and a challenge and, and a lot of fun too. Well, it's and it's so important, and it's just such a good point to make that, you know, conservation, we, we think about it in public lands, you know, which is super important, and we're going to talk a, a bit about, you know, your, your new book pretty here pretty quick. But, I mean, there's so much private land held in the United States, and, you know, so so many people have so much influence and power to conserve wildlife and, you know, trees and, and everything else through their own property by mm-hmm. managing it well. You know, we, we had Donnie Vincent on a while back and, and talked a bit w- about that with him, where it's like, you know, the, the, this is your property that you can you can manipulate and manage to, to you know, for the better use of, of animals and, and everything else. Oh, yeah. Huge opportunity. And I think the number is somewhere around 350 million acres across the nation are owned for recreational hunting owned or leased i think was the right number so that's that's a huge swath of our country that we as hunters have influence over and if we start using that influence for positive change in these places we can really do some good things across the country Mm -hmm. yeah create a habitat that's not only good for whitetail which you know we're we're big whitetail hunters and that's great but for garter snakes and turtles and birds well-rounded habitat exactly Absolutely, and that's all good for clean water, and it's good for clean air, and right. it's good mm-hmm. for everything. There's there's a lot of really important, great work being done on private land too. So I've always approached and thought about 
private land issues and conservation and public land issues and conservation, those are not opposing things. These are supplemental, equally important parts of what we are doing out here as hunters and anglers and conservationists. So some people want to say, oh, you're either a public land guy or a private land guy. Or if you, you know, hunt private land, then you can't possibly support public land right. or something like that. And I've always thought that's absurd. How about just hunt? Pri- like, yeah, <laughs> you know, exactly. Let's hunt and let's care for habitat and wild places, whether that's the 20 acres behind your house or 2000 acres in Montana. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, at this point in the podcast, typically we would jump into tactics and, you know, hunting talk. And, you know, mm-hmm. we'll have to do that at some point because I've got a whole list of questions I'd love to cover with you. But, you know, you just released your your first book, and I, I'd love to talk about that. Tell us what's the title. Tell us what's it about. Give a brief synopsis of, of, of your book, new book. Yeah, so the book is called That Wild Country, An Epic Journey Through the Past, Present, and Future of America's Public Lands. So this story, this book, is a look at the history of how we as Americans got to be the owners of 640 million acres or so of public land across the country. So how did this all come to be? Who were the people? What were the controversies? How did this all come together? And then what's happening now today that could potentially influence whether or not we have these places in the future? So that's kind of the historical yeah. and informational narrative I wanted to share in this book. But to, to do that, I wanted to ground that information within my own set of experiences yeah. and tell the story of, of my own adventures across these wild places. So it's also the story of a backpacking trip in Yellowstone and a pack rafting trip in Montana and a bear hunt with Randy Newberg and a caribou hunt in Alaska and a yep. backpacking trip in northern Michigan and shed hunting trip in North Dakota, peak bagging in Nevada, a whole bunch of, of my own experiences out here to really flesh out what these places mean, why they're special, why they're worth caring about and protecting and that's that's kind of what this book is all about in a nutshell. It it examines you know everything from what was going on in the 1800s all the way to what was going on in 2018. Yeah, and I love the way that you you kind of weave your story in with the broader story because that that's kind of the best way to to have this connection with a place or a thing. You know, experiencing it yourself or telling a story about it makes it yeah. kind of come to life. Yeah, that's that's what I've always enjoyed the most. There are other books out there that talk about the history of conservation in America or the history of public land in America. But almost to a T, they are dense, dull Hmm. textbooks that the average (laughs) American just isn't going to read. So a lot of this stuff just is not known by your average person out there, and it's, it's a shame. And so I wanted to try to make this stuff accessible and engaging for your average Joe, whether they live in Manhattan or Michigan or Montana, a lot of people don't realize that we have these places or that it took a lot of people standing up and working hard to get these places. Yeah. I was hoping to get that word out to the larger uh, population in a way that was that was fun but also educational. Yeah, no, it's it's a it's a great read. Re- really really well done. When, when did you start decide to write it? You know, I, not even start. When when was this kind of an idea in your head cuz you know, you don't have a, a a background in writing other than, you know, writing articles. This is, you know, kind of your yeah. first shot at it. It's some once I got into like the writing for the website and then writing for magazines mm-hmm. and everything, I knew that someday I wanted to write a book. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what it was going to be about, but I, I knew I wanted to write a book someday. I'm an absolute bookworm. Love to read. So that was always a dream. I think in 2014 or 15, I started thinking like, how do you do that? And I, I think I started picking Steve Rennell's brain about it back then. Oh, you did? Okay. And he kind of walked me through a couple high-level things to think about. Like, you have to get a book agent. You have to then work with that agent to then develop a book proposal. And then you have to go and 
pitch that to publishing companies. And that just helped me understand the logistics of it. Somewhere in 2015 or 16, I think it was, I finally made that. It was right around that time period where I was shifting my career goals, mm -hmm. as I told you earlier, to all right, how do I make a difference now? It was right at that same time. So this must have been late 16, maybe, okay. that I said, okay, one of the ways I'm going to do that is I'm going to write a book. I've been thinking about it, but I'm just going to do it. I'm going to figure out, I'm just going to do the work. I'm going to, each year I always try to have like a stretch goal or a sure. special project or something. And so I decided at that point, all right, is going to be this book thing. You're going to make it happen. And this was right around the same time in 2016 when the land transfer movement was really mm -hmm. getting a lot of attention. A lot of people were talking about this idea that some people wanted to transfer federal public lands to states or sell right. them off. And so this is something I was learning a lot about just as a, both a consumer and a creator of outdoor media. I was getting into it and learning more and more about it. And I realized just what I said a second ago, wow, there's so much I don't know. Then I talked to other people and they knew a whole lot or they didn't know a whole lot as well. So that's when I realized, okay, I want to write a book someday. And now there's this thing I love, which are these wild places across mm -hmm. the country that are seemingly increasingly in trouble. And the more I learn about them, the more I realized, wow, there's a lot going on here that the average person doesn't know. I decided that that would be the book. So starting in 16, I was working on like the book proposal process and all of that and working with an agent and putting, I mean, it's a massive project just to get that done, like a 60 page document with yeah. sample chapters and outlines and plans. And I think in fall 2017, I officially got a book deal and then was, was writing it from that point on into early 2019. Okay. Wow, so that's that's a long process. What was the worst part of it? It it was the worst and the best part, mm -hmm. what I'll describe mm -hmm. to you here. <laughs> and it was simply sitting at your computer at 2 in the morning and just trying to make sense of dozens of pages of notes yeah. and all these ideas you have. And it's just sitting there. like the, There's nothing more terrifying <laughs> and depressing and demoralizing than an empty Word document page and blinking <laughs> cursor. That stupid blinking cursor. Yeah, I know that. Yes. It's just taunting you, saying there's so much work to do. It's so hard. Yeah. No, there's no way you could do this. There's no way what you're going to put in here is going to be any good or yeah. worth anyone's time. So battling that little blinking bastard of a cursor mm. <laughs> every morning when you woke up, that was the hardest part. It's it's like you sometimes, or at least I assumed yeah. as a younger person, when I read all these books, I'd look at someone or an author, and I'd, I'd think, wow, they just must be brilliant. They just must be inspired with this amazing with prose. Yes. Yes. Yeah. You imagine like I don't know Ernest Hemingway, or even like today, someone like Steve Rinella. He sits on the computer and just like this stuff just flows out of him. <laughs> right. It's perfect. And it's great. As I was trying to self-teach myself to be a writer over the last decade, I would read more and more books and different resources about how to do this stuff and read people's firsthand accounts. And what was most helpful to me through this process was that I learned that that idea of a writer is not reality for 99.99% of people. Yeah. What writing really is, what good writers really do, is they sit down, they look at that nasty cursor, and they flip at the bird, yeah. and they say, you know what, I'm just going to get something done today, and it's yep. going to suck. I'm going to write something. I'm going to vomit something on the page. Sure. I always talk about a like a shitty first draft. So you just have to get you have to get something out there. And then you can go back and fix it and fix it and fix it. But you just have to kind of break the seal sure. and then bash your head against the wall over and over and over again until it until it turns into something good. That's so that's slow what writing pro plotting was. progress. That's that's yeah. That's a Jerry Seinfeld. He'd write one joke a day and his, yeah. every day he writes one joke. It could be good or bad, but like at least you have it. At least you got something out there. Yes. 
it's exactly exactly what this process was. So it was both infuriating and frustrating and tough and a ton of work. But at the same time, when things would come together or when a sentence clicked in or when all of a sudden this made sense or yeah. a chapter came together, that's the most fulfilling thing I've ever done. So it was it was the best and the worst. <sighs> Usually, most things, most of the truly, and you know, I, I, I want to talk a little bit about that later. But the truly good things in life are are, are not the easy things, or the you know the, the immediate gratification type situations. Mm-hmm. It's very, very true. But you, I always like to talk about. Uh, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. I was just gonna say I always like to talk about type two fun. Yeah. There's these this idea like the different types of fun. Type one fun is just your simple. It's fun in the moment, like playing a game of basketball or watching a movie. That's the roller coaster. Stuff. It's yeah, it's fine. A firework. But it's yeah, yeah. But then type two fun is the kind of fun that maybe in the moment it's not that much fun. It's hiking up a mountain. It's packing an elk off of a mountain. You might be miserable in the moment, but a year later or a week later or whatever, you're going to look back on that and it's the coolest thing you ever did. And you have stories about it and you reminisce about it and it sticks with you. And I love type two fun. I want the work. I want the misery. I want the tough stuff because... That's the kind of thing that really, really moves the needle in the long run. So this book was a whole lot of type two fun for me. Well, and it seems like it's it's interesting because the book was, but when you're telling your stories throughout the book, it seems like all your stories are type two fun. You know, it's <laughs> yeah. I'm walking with my dad and he, you know, squishes an orange or, you know, I'm in this back country of, you know, in grizzly country, you know, rafting and that it's difficult. It's all or with your wife and it's cold I'm camping in the back of a truck or, or whatever. It seems like this, you know, backcountry, this wild place adventure usually is, has to be type two fun. Is that true? Have you found that to be, you know, kind of the necessary ingredient for experiencing the wild? I would say for me, it is. Certainly people can have a type one experience with wild places to a degree. Mm -hmm. And I would rather them have that than none at all. Yeah. Right. I I would rather someone drive through Yellowstone National Park and at least see it than never seeing it at all. Right. I would encourage them to get out of the car and get off the road and physically experience it in a deeper way. You're going to have a better experience. If, you, if you're physically capable, you're going to have a physically or a better experience, I would say. Yeah. But I would take a little bit than nothing at all because it's really hard to to ever care about these places or, or want to stick up for them in any kind of way unless you have some kind of connection to them. So a little is better. Yeah, or a little something, but uh, but a lot's better. And I always would push people to try to go beyond your comfort zone, to push the limits, to go and get uncomfortable. I think there's a lot of people today that are divorced from nature and sure. divorced from the outdoors and any kind of real physical work or connection with this place or wild animals. And I've never seen anything but benefits and personal growth and uh, fulfillment yeah. from doing that. Were you tempted to leave any of these difficult moments out to, to, out of fear of scaring people away or anything like that? You know, that's interesting you bring that up because I don't think I ever did think about that. Hmm. And it's interesting you say that because maybe I did scare some people off. Yeah, sure. And that's, and that's something I didn't want to do. One of my goals with this book, I really wanted to make it not only accessible from a history standpoint, but also accessible in that it would hopefully inspire some people to want to see these places. And so maybe you're right. Maybe some of this stuff w- would get a reader say, ooh. I couldn't do that. (laughs) But at the same time, I am just an average schmuck. You know, I'm not some superstar. I am not Survivor Man. I am not 
Bear Grylls or something like that. Right. And I, I survived it. I did this stuff. I went out there and made a fool out of myself sometimes, made some mistakes sometimes, flipped, flipped a, a canoe over. here and there. Yeah. 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 So so I, if bumbling Mark Kenyon could do this, <laughs> so, so can anyone else. Yeah. Well, it's it's an interesting point because, and you talk about it a bit when you talk about the relationship between FDR and Bob Marshall, right? Mm, Both yeah. of these guys, proponents of public land, but they had this disagreement that we we see still being debated today. You know, what does protection look like? How do you develop the public land? Who gets to decide? You know, FDR chose the the Civilian Conservation Corps to core to you know to build roads and stuff, and you know, or, or plan to and. You know, Marshall and, and guys like Leopold were like, whoa, you need, you need places that are untouched. And you can see both sides points where, you know, you want this un, you know, uninhibited wilderness mm-hmm. versus like this something that's accessible for a guy who, you know, FDR, whether people knew it at the time or not, had polio and could not walk. Mm-hmm. So you can kind of understand both of both of their, their kind of points of view. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and you're right. It is still the crux of so many debates still today. Uh, and I talk about a lot in the book. One of the things that makes our public land so special, but also so challenging is yeah. the fact that they are shared by all of us. And in most cases, they are multiple use, a lot of different stakeholders. So that makes it really tricky to figure out the right way to manage these things. And uh, I always err on the side of like, balance. We have to figure out yeah. a way that there's going to be some places that should be used in this kind of way. And there's some places where, yeah, we should have resource extraction and sustainable development sure. and logging and drilling and things like that. It's great that we have a public resource that we can use in that kind of way, but it's got to be done responsibly, carefully, in the right places, and with a view of the long term. That was something that Theodore Roosevelt made very clear over and over again as mm-hmm. he was really setting the foundation for a public land system. It was, you always need to think about the next generation. Because yeah. if you think about just today, you're going to make decisions that will not keep these resources and places around for the long term. And so I think that is a helpful filter to pass a lot of these specific questions or controversies through. What's going to be the right decision for the long term and for the next generation? But yeah, I mean, I personally have internal debates around this too. When I want to see the average American be able to get out into some of these spots. So I like the idea that you've got national parks that are accessible by vehicle and there's visitor centers and there's roads and there's all that kind of stuff. I'm glad that someone that lives in New York that maybe has never done anything in a wild country before could go out and see it and be touched by it in some kind of way. Yeah. But I also am really glad that we've got some places that are completely the opposite of that, as wild and untouched and untrammeled as you can find still in the country, where you can't take a car, where you can't even take a bike, where you have to just viscerally connect with your feet, get dirty, get tired, maybe come face-to-face with a bear. Right. I think we need that kind of thing too, at least for those who – are interested in it it's it's a good thing it's out there i would say yeah you're connected to the ground but you also you know like and you you've, you've kind of alluded to this a lot in your book it's like you you learn a lot about yourself i mean you are faced with your own internal you know grizzlies in in some mm-hmm. respect a lot by just being forced out into very uncomfortable situations yeah I mean, that's that's the type two fun again. I yeah. think that makes a person who they are. It, yeah. it can help. That's the only way to grow. The muscles, when you look at how muscle grows and develops, it, the only way that happens is by tearing right. muscle fibers apart before they can regrow stronger. Well, I think that's the same thing with, with a person's just psyche or yeah. your own self, your self-identity. There's no way you can grow, become a better person, become a more well-rounded person than by sometimes letting yourself get tore down a little bit putting yourself in the thick of something and seeing what happens and and how you come out the other side. That's 
at least for me personally and what I want out of life, that's the future I'm looking towards. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so with that in mind, you know, we, we talk balances. That's, that's all fine and good. What about hunting? You know, you have, you have a little bit of a, a self-interest in wanting to hunt things. Should it all be open to hunting or are there places that shouldn't, you shouldn't be able to hunt? Mm, great question. Because yes, I am obviously avid hunter. It is my number one passion. I eat, sleep, and breathe hunting. Really, really, really want to fight for the future of hunting in America and the right to bear arms and chase critters and feed my family with, you know, self-acquired protein. Yep. At the same time, I do also understand that we need balance and there are going to be some places that that's maybe not the right thing for that place. Because we all want to experience these places in different ways. There are different priorities for different pieces and parts of this public land, too. Right. So I personally do not mind that national parks are not open to hunting. That's fine. Now, if you if you took away all of our national forests and all of our wilderness areas and all of our BLM, BLM lands yep. and all of our state land, if you take away all that stuff, then all of a sudden it's a different story. But because we have 500-some million acres of public land that is open to yep. hunting— federally and then millions of acres of state land i don't see a pressure there should we aspire for more and more public access for hunting absolutely but i'm okay that yellowstone is one of those places that we've decided that's okay for for something different it would be hun- awesome hunting in yellowstone yes it would yes it would, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, it would. well it's, it's cool that the balancing act you know you, you start off kind of the beginning of the book talking about the homestead act you know 160 acres and basically you, you mentioned like roughly a billion acres were given away you know led to this yeah. gobbling up of the land and the wildlife you know there's this this balance that you know they were trying to strike and i don't think they did it well was you know we need to expand but we need to protect and it was at that point expansion manifest destiny you know and it seems like throughout your book you're seeing these pendulum swings one to, to growth the roaring 20s the 50s you know to the 30s you know where, where you, you have guys like fdr or, or teddy roosevelt you know, trying to trying to protect things and that's that's absolutely right and that was that's kind of been the story of our public land history over the course of, you know, from the first national park, which yeah. was created in 1872, all the way to today, it's just been a giant game of tug of war, Yeah. which, and I, I keep on going back to this. It's frustrating. It's challenging, but it's also what makes these places work and makes them special yeah. is that we have all these different people at the table. We have all these different uses. It would have been really hard to get these places protected or to keep them protected today. If only one type of person could ever use them. I don't know. I don't. I don't know if there's any more American idea or concept out there than public lands. Yeah. You've democratized land and brought all these different people, this diverse suite of folks, all into these spaces. I don't know. It's it's a really interesting thing that perpetuates still today. Fortunately, because like you said, a lot of different people stood up for them and yeah. weathered the storms when political winds changed. One of my great laments, I guess, is that public lands have become so political and that mm. sometimes one side of the political aisle is antagonistic towards them. Yeah. Uh, what I would hope coming out of one of the things I hope that could be achieved through this book is, is kind of helping bring to light, like these places should not be partisan. It sure. shouldn't be a Republican issue or a democratic issue. This is just an American issue. Let's just, regardless of what political party you are, if there's someone who's trying to cut these places down or damage them or destroy them or take them away, let's just call a spade a spade. Right. And say, you know what? This is a bad idea. I voted for you, but this one is a bad idea. Right. Cut right. it up. Or it might be the other way. And you'd say, I'm not voting for this person because this is a bad idea. I also hope that we can do that 
internally too within the community of people that care about these places and say whether you're a republican or a democrat whether you are a hunter or a vegetarian mountain climber right let's set aside we do have differences of course we come from different places maybe we vote differently maybe we think differently on some of these things but we all care or a lot of us care about these wild places. A lot of us care about these wild animals. Let's find some ways to come together on these bigger issues and make a difference in that kind of way rather than getting so stuck on the fact that you're an R, I'm a D, or whatever right. it is. Yeah, and it's funny. That pendulum is is just kind of how politics works, democracy works. I mean, you go from President Obama to President Trump. And we said to the 30s and 40s to the 50s where it's funny, I was watching, I don't know if you've ever seen Mad Men. Uh, there's a scene yeah. which takes place in the 50s and John Hamm is with his family in the park and they're like, they're, they're whatever. And, at, and when they're done eating, they just throw their trash on the ground and leave. And I'm like, right. it, when I'm reading your book, that scene popped in my head when you're talking about the 50s and you know, giving away of this public land, like people mm-hmm. just had such a different such a different look and an yeah. outlook on, on, on nature. That's an interesting point. And it's, and it's so true. You get these, these, uh, what, what do they say? They say with every force, I'm going to, I'm going to get it wrong, but every force is an equal and counter force yes, or something right. like that. Yep, that's so good. you, I like it. <laughs> you, yeah, you get that happening in politics and you get it happening in public land politics too. There's always the, that counter force, something happens. So president Obama comes out and, and he has this very different set of ideas or different way of presenting things or whatever. Hmm. And that energizes the other side who comes back and has an extreme reaction to that. And then you get President Trump and (laughs) who knows what's going to happen this next year. But yeah, I mean, I guess that's America and there's these swings and maybe that's, even though it can be frustrating the moment or it can seem like our country's tearing apart at the seams, maybe that back and forth is what keeps us in the end somewhat in the middle and somewhat moving in a positive direction without these crazy crazy ups and downs right. we, we self-regulate to some degree i guess just we have some hiccups along the way i guess yeah it's the market you know mm-hmm. you look at stock market up close and it's up and down up and down but you know you you zoom out and you can see this you know more gradual either growth or, or decline yep. so question for yeah. you and this is totally unrelated everybody in these you know in history it seems like you look at roosevelt in particular they're always fighting barons right timber barons railroad barons <laughs> at the time were they calling themselves barons like ah my job is uh, i'm a railroad baron uh i'm gonna go <laughs> is that or is that like a you know are we just calling them that derogatorily that's a great, great question, and I don't know the real answer to yeah. that because everything I'm reading is, you know, talking about those people of the past. Yeah, I don't. My assumption is that that is not how they refer to themselves. <laughs> They're not robber my barons to their friends. <laughs> no. I got a robber baron friend. I wish that was the case. Yeah. That'd be pretty funny. Yeah, but my assumption is uh, that's us revisionist historians looking back and <laughs> and labeling them as such. Yeah, I wonder what we're going to be labeled. Yeah, millennials, I think, is what mm. we're going to be labeled. We already uh, have. We're been. all going to be. We're Dang lumped it. into that one. But the new thing, the new comeback, I, which I just learned about, and apparently it's been around for a while. When somebody gives you flack, Jared, for being a millennial, you just look at them in the eye and say, okay, boomer. And then that's yep. like the ultimate reverse burn. How? Because I've, you're calling I've them heard a, that too. Like, oh, you ruined, I mean, basically saying, well, you're a boomer, you Baby know, boomer. and you've ruined so many things like, okay, boomer, you know, real sarcastic. Mm-hmm. My, my response to anyone who always calls me a millennial is, well, who raised the millennials? Right. But, and then, but you could, without all those words, you could just say, okay, boomer. And there's so much more, yep. you know, power yep. to that. I like it. You get, when Steve Rinella gives you a hard time, I think he's a baby boomer, right? You just be like, okay, boomer, you know. <laughs> that would be an interesting one to try. <laughs> just, we, worth a shot. Let us know how it goes, you know. Just a little yeah, uh, boga a little, tip. A little boga tip. I'll save it for a podcast so everyone can hear. That's <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. You have witnesses then. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
So you've grew, you've now spent a lot of time in Michigan. You, you talked a lot about your your time in the Adirondacks growing up. So, but how has living in Michigan shaped your your view of public lands? Well, it was foundational in my history because my earliest some of my earliest memories of the outdoors and what really built my love for hunting and fishing and getting outside and doing this stuff it started at my northern michigan deer camp and our camp was on 40 acres of private land but on two sides we were adjacent to a large swath of 8,000 some acres of public land okay so growing up i just you know if you go to the north side of the creek you're on public land Mm. and that's where i hunted most of my life growing up was on that public so i knew public land was this thing i knew it was something that i used a lot but i i never really got it i just thought it was there and so I, I kind of grew up knowing that it was here knowing it was a thing we could use, benefiting from it a lot, but with no context, with no sense of obligation to give back to it either. Right. It was just kind of there. So that was, yeah, yeah, that was kind of all I knew or thought about all the way till I don't think really my mind started changing on that or really understanding the bigger scheme of things till college or beyond really. And it was when I first, I, I, I grew up doing these things locally Spent a lot of time hunting and fishing and hiking and camping in Michigan. Mm -hmm. We took a couple trips out west to some of these bigger national parks when I was a little kid. And they they, they stuck with me. I always had these memories of the mountains and, like, how amazing that trip was when I was 7 or 8 and 10. I saw these pictures. I always wanted to go back and do that stuff. But my family didn't do that kind of thing anymore to that degree. I had no one really that could, I don't know, prepare me for a bigger wilderness adventure. I didn't know how to backpack or how to hang a bear bag or anything but i took this uh my senior year of college i had a extra elective credits i had to use up and there was i was scanning through all the different class options and i saw wilderness preparedness 101 ah nice yep and i was like oh yeah that's awesome because i i loved this stuff but it was always pretty local michigan pretty simpleton stuff but i always loved you know watching documentaries about climbing Everest or whatever it might be always was fascinated by these outdoor adventures but just didn't feel prepared to do them myself so I took that course the professor was kind of like a real life version of an American Bear Grylls (laughs) he had been a field biologist in Alaska and Antarctica and Montana and the Amazon rainforest and he'd been all across the world really wild places did a lot of cool stuff and he was just full of these both great experiences and stories by the end of that class, I felt completely prepared to go out and start backpacking and going into wilderness areas and going on these backcountry trips and mm-hmm. whatever. And we started doing that. Then I finished that class. I bought a backpack, told my girlfriend, hey, we're going to go backpacking. And so we, we we had to start hiking. It was kind of, If you read the book, you know the story of yep. the first hike we ever did together. But that led me to later that summer, we went for our first Western trip together and spent like two weeks or something like that going from national park to national park on my drive out to starting my full-time job. We, we took this extended trip. Right. And ever since then, I had my eyes open to, wow, like there is so much wilderness and in wild crazy places out there for us to see yeah and every year since then i've been making pilgrimages to various parts of the country to try to experience as many wild places as i can and do as many of these different things that i can on these in these landscapes and uh it started in michigan but it took me a long time to realize that there was more yeah and michigan's got i mean you know you talk about pictured rocks or sleeping bear dunes they've got mm-hmm. they've got that that north manitou island which jared and i have talked a little bit about mm-hmm. which just a, a side note, they do this hunt there every year. Have you heard of this? 
I have. I've, I've thought several times about trying to do it. I really want to do it. I, I I'm not really a bug guy, and I heard there's crazy amount of ticks. You know what? You just pick. I've get t- the ticks have been bad lately, but it'll be cold. It's November, October, November, end of October. Anyways, I'd like to do that. So you, so it, it's it's good. It was just cool to to read it because I think starting what three years ago, my family and I started to do. My wife and my my daughter and I started doing more of these, you know, camping trips. We go two weeks camping in different national parks. So, you know, reading some of your stories were the same places uh, that we went, you know, picture rocks. I I think two years ago, I took my daughter, she was five. We did a 10 mile hike, which went about as well as you can expect you know, hope a 10 mile hike goes with a five-year-old made it about, you know, halfway. She's like, you know, I'm just done. And then three quarters of the way started, you see in the breakdown. And then at the end, uh-huh, she was basically uh-huh. a puddle, uh, you know, dragging around. <laughs> but you know, that's awesome. It, it's so accessible. And what's actually cool is not only in America, but we started going up into Canada. They've got a, a great park system too. I mean, oh, so yeah. much, so much land. Yeah. Canada's got it made. They still have a whole lot of wild stuff. I, I'm jealous of Canada sometimes when you look at the wilderness they have. Yeah, we, we've talked a lot about how cool it'd be. It'd be really cool to live in Canada, but then that would make you Canadian, and I just mm. can't abide. <laughs> I don't like hockey that much. I know, and just the Canuck way is just not my way. Yeah, I certainly certainly enjoy a visit here and there, though. Oh, yeah. No, I think we're going to – we're headed up. So we did uh, Nova Scotia this this year, and I think we're going to Alberta this coming year and kind nice. of and then camping our way down and through Montana nice. and coming back. So – we're just starting to plan now. It's like you get right back from one camping trip and you start planning the next one because it's so fun. Yeah, that that planning process and the anticipation sometimes that's that's half the fun. Yeah. Are you the now if you and your wife go? Are you the big planner for this, or is it or is it mostly her? Or is it pretty mixed? Definitely me. That doesn't surprise me. Yep, I'm definitely the big planner on it, and I get really geeked out about it. I do all sorts of research, and uh, I've changed a little bit. Early on, yep. I would have very detailed itineraries, and like we're going to do this day, this hike, and this day, this yep. hike, and this day, this trip, and we're going to stay at this campground. Especially back when I was doing my day job, too, and we only had 10 days, I yep. would have these very ambitious trips planned to pack in as much as I possibly could into that short period of time. It's changed now because we're going out and living out in these places for months at a time sometimes. Right. So that's changed what we can do and how we plan it. But I'm, I'm the one who plans them still. But I have tried to better incorporate my wife into that decision making. <laughs> that's wise. Yeah. Early on, I was guilty of railroading her into uh, a lot of stuff. Yeah. And, and that wasn't fun. So no, you paid for that. Yeah, I did. So, so now we try to have a a more democratic process, Mm. uh, because, uh, as, as they say, a happy wife is happy Happy life. That's almost like a type three fun, I believe. A happy wife. (laughs) A little added extra pain in there. Yeah, exactly. So I want to, you know, getting close to wrapping it up here, but two, two final questions I had for you. First, you talk a lot about a lot of trips. Favorite camping trip you've been on? Favorite backcountry could be hunting or not hunting. Yet, is there one that comes to mind? Can you answer that question that way? Are those two separate things: camping and then hunting, or, or just you know, we'll combine them into mm-hmm. one broad outdoors category. Oh boy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I got another question for you too. That's going to put you right on the spot. Good. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, I'm going to give you a bad answer because I'm not going to pick one single thing. Uh, yeah. But probably the Alaskan caribou hunt was just the most mine or world changing, I guess, sure. just going to Alaska for the first time and being dropped, you know, a couple hundred miles away from anything else into mm. this immense, just beyond the scale of anything I've ever experienced kind of wilderness and yeah. seeing that amount of life streaming across it. I mean, you just can't, there's nothing that compares to that. So that was unbelievable unbelievably beautiful 
just great. I would say another really special trip though would have been like the first backpacking trip I took my son on this summer. I'm finding the more and more of the most exciting, fun trips now are those that I get to share with my son. Sure. <laughs> Seeing that place through his eyes, getting to, you know, just watch him climbing a boulder or something. Being a boy out there. Uh, yeah, it's so stinking cool. And then I'm going to give you two more. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> um, two more than, like, selfish just me trips. My pack rafting trip that I took with my buddy Andy that I yeah. talk about in the book, that is one of the absolute coolest. I Slaying mean, that, those the Bob fish. Marshall Wilderness. The fishing was unreal. Yeah. The landscape is stunning. Then the, the, the different modes of travel, going mm. from rafting to hiking, the fishing and the other stuff all going on. Just a really great And getting laughed at for not taking a horse. Yeah, can you believe that? Yeah. <laughs> stones on that guy. Yeah. I know. I know. That was a great one. And, and, and there's, there's too many to list, I guess. I've been really blessed to be able to have a lot of these cool experiences. So they all were special in their own way. Yeah. Jared, you're up. You got yeah. another question. So my question for you, Mark, is it's – now, is this the longstanding question that this you – This is the longstanding question. It's a bit of a tradition on the podcast, and we only ask kind of guests who were, you know, worth their salt. Yeah. So yeah, sure. Be, okay, yeah, yeah. So I want you to feel a little bit, you yeah. know, enticed and just feel a little good about yourself that I get to ask you this yeah. question. <laughs> uh, Select <and> right. <laughs> The question is, with all of these – backpacking trips and you've gone on and hunting trips and everything you know these extended camping trips with the family what's your most useless piece of item that like you equipment have? like, a, like something you bring with yep, something that you bring with but it's just the most useless thing that you have that you found to be in your pack consistently so something i consistently bring but never use yeah oh my gosh wow we've heard them all so yeah. Yeah, well, the most consistently used and most important piece is always toilet paper, so yeah, I know oh not man. to sip that. And backup. Yeah, got to have that. I don't know. I used to be guilty of bringing extra layers. Too many. I learned uh, quickly okay. that that was always always useless. I end up just living. I, that, that, that might be the answer. I always bring too many clothes too many on clothes. camping okay. trips or things like that, and I never change. I just live in the same outfit the entire oh, damn time. Yep. You and James. Well, I know, but if it's Merino, it's not picking up your stink. Right, so I yeah. wear, I go out, I, I get those first light merino undies mm-hmm. for, yep. for me, and you, you just, they don't smell, you, they don't <laughs> smell, and these guys give me a hard time. I'm like, you guys pack way too heavy, you don't need it all. Yes, you're on the right track. That is, that's, that's what I do now. I, I learn from my lessons, and I just, I wear what I wear. Yeah, and uh, you're good to go from there on out. But that's even true. <laughs> this might be a little less socially acceptable, <laughs> but even when like we go out on these months long trips out West, my <laughs> wife and I would be, we'd live in our camper out on public lands and I would end up just wearing the same stuff day after day. I'd shower like once a week Oh yeah, uh, because yeah. it's just not convenient. Even though I'm, I'm working, I'm out there for four months and I showered, you know, I don't know, Five once times. a week. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a whole lot of hygiene going on. But. <laughs> Baby wipes uh, go know, a long way. Yeah. Start talking about being worth your salt. There was That's right. There's salt going on. You're covered in salt at that point. That. A little but, extra. But when it's cold, too, it's the worst to just get naked, you know, and, and change. Like, oh, if yeah. we're, when we were out in Wisconsin this year, it was camping brisk. out, I'm not changing. It's too cold for that. Well, yeah. No need for that. Keep it simple. That's I, right. I, I'm, I'm trying to find ways to keep it simple. Well, good answer. I, I do like that. Yeah, one. yeah. Yep. That was good. Well, Mark. Thank you so much for coming on. But before we, we let you go, um, you want to tell everybody you know where they can find your book, where they can find more information about you and listen to your podcast and everything else? Yeah, absolutely. So the book is available most places now that you can buy books. It's called That Wild Country, An Epic Journey Through the Past, Present, and Future of America's Public Land. So 
probably the easiest place to find it's over on Amazon. You can follow all the rest of the stuff I've got going on, you know, via social media. Just search for Wired to Hunt anywhere, and you'll find me there on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or podcast, wherever you get your podcast. The Wired to Hunt podcast is there. And my articles and things like that, as well as the Back 40 series, that all lives on the Meat Eater website. Mm. So that's TheMeatEater.com. I just got an email from you about blood trailing a deer. So uh, you subscribe to their mailing list. You get some good tips. There you go. Yeah, weekly, the Whitetail Weekly Newsletter. Check that out. I love it. Well, Mark, thanks again for coming on. We'll, uh, We'll have to have you back. Hey, I appreciate it. This is fun, and I'm happy to talk deer as well anytime. So let me know if you want a part two someday. Yeah, excellent. We're going to need all the help we can get. So we'll see you later. (laughs) Appreciate it. Hey, everybody. Thanks again for listening to this episode. Uh, If you want to go over and hit subscribe to wherever you're listening to this podcast, that'd be great. It'd really help us out. And if you want to follow us along more, check out our Instagram page at Boga Hunting. Thanks.